This edition of Farming the Countryside is brought to you by the Top Producer Summit, coming up February 14th through the 16th in Nashville. Learn more at tpsummit.com and stand by for a way to save 25% on your registration. Welcome to Farming the Countryside. I'm Andrew McRae. Kelly Newenhouse began farming in the early 1980s near Primgar, Iowa. The interest rate on his first farmland purchase was 18% in a county that often has the highest average value of farmland. Over the past four decades, he's expanded his operation and serves as the president of the Iowa Corn Promotion Board. We get his insights on navigating rising input costs, best cropping practices, and what farmers may encounter in a world of carbon-neutral farming incentives. It's our topic for this week's Farming the Countryside, and it's brought to you by the Top Producer Summit. Many of you are familiar with the Top Producer Summit. Perhaps you've attended or thought of attending. Now, there are two great ways to participate. The upcoming Top Producer Summit will be held in Nashville, Tennessee, February 14th through the 16th. This is the summit's 25th year, and there are always plenty of great speakers, interesting topics, and opportunities to meet and learn from others in the agricultural industry. All told, there are over 40 speakers with timely topics and important information for those in agriculture. If you can't get to Nashville, join us online the following week, February 22nd and 23rd, for more exclusive content. Hopefully, that's all of interest, but there's something else very important. You can take 25% off your registration with the code FARMING at tpsummit.com. Again, take 25% off your registration by using the code FARMING. Just go to tpsummit.com to register and learn more about this year's event. I was recently in northwest Iowa, just south of the town of Primgar, where I spoke with the president of the Iowa Corn Promotion Board, Kelly Newenhouse. The day I visited, the temperature was 14 below zero, so we did the interview inside his seed shed. So you'll hear a slight echo inside that machine shed, but the heated building sure beats standing outside. Kelly has farmed since the early 80s, and he's sold seed most of those years, today working as a channel seedsman. We spent some time talking about farming methods he's using there on his land and what he's seen area farmers do. But we also spent time discussing land values, as O'Brien County, Iowa, is often ranked as having the highest farmland values in the state. In fact, some farmland in the area is bringing over $20,000 per acre. We also talked about the future of the corn industry, since that's part of Kelly's work with the Corn Promotion Board, and what he sees on the horizon for conservation and carbon credit incentives that may influence farming methods. We began our conversation, though, talking about growing great crops, and that discussion began with soil nutrition. Why don't I start with pH? Talk about how important pH is to be able to do really anything out there in the field. Yeah, you know, we, we, did, we did apply a lot of lime to our farms this fall. Um, we've got our fertility levels in the high or very high range, but then we did soil testing, and we do that at least every four years and we got to keep our pH balanced. You know, if it's below six, it's too acidic. And if it's above six and a half, the nutrients aren't available to the crop. So we try to get, keep it in that range. And we do a lot of uh, um, our, our grids for our soil testing. We do four acre grids. So it's not, not the smallest, but it's pretty small. And then when we spread our lime to balance our pH, it's a variable rate. You know, there's parts of the field that we're needing three, three and a half ton, and there's parts of it that need zero. 
So we don't just spread the whole farm. We wanna make sure it's a balanced field and to get uh, the best overall production possibilities out of that certain field. We all know that pH is very important, but are farmers watching it close enough? Because if you don't have that right, it's going to affect everything else. I, I think they are. I think, you know, with the newer technologies and stuff, we realize we need to keep the pH balanced. And, and one of the big part for me, you know, with our soil fertilities the way, the way they are in our own farming operation, I know the growers are different, um, but with ours, that being some of it's very high, I've always known that adding more fertilizer to that, you only have like a 1% chance of increased yield production. If you're in the high range, you have about a 5% chance of increasing yield. But we do a lot of testing on our soils for micronutrients. And if you don't have your pH balance correct for your macronutrients to work right, it's no advantage to using micronutrients. And our last soil test we got showed us in the high to very high on the macronutrients or the P and K, but we had very low sulfur, very low zinc. And so our micronutrients we're using are a combination of about 15 pounds of sulfur and two pounds of zinc. And you know, that doesn't sound like much, but those two micronutrients are very mobile. So it doesn't pay to put a bunch out there because it's not gonna be around. So you just use enough for that one year growing season to produce the best crop possible. So what are you finding then, the balance between macros and micronutrients? Is there a specific soil pH you're shooting for to make them all more available? Or do you shoot for the pH for the macronutrients first? How do you look at your own acres? Well, just basically between that six to 6.5. You know, that's the range we want to be in with our soils. So that's what we focus on. And, uh, you know, I, I've always known the NP and K are, are, are out there um, with our for fertilizer program. But I truly believe if you're in the high to very high, your biggest kick bang for the buck is your micronutrients and making sure they're correct um, for that plant to uptake. What have you seen on the micronutrient side then? Where is it usually lacking? Is it the sulfur you mentioned that? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the, it's kind of a unique situation because over the years we've cleaned up our atmosphere so much. We used to have acid, acid rains that we didn't have to apply sulfur or some of these micronutrients, but since that is cleaned up so much, that's one thing that's being deficient in our soils. So I think we've been using sulfur and zinc for I'll, I'll say seven years, so that means it's probably been 10. <laughs> <laughs> On the macronutrient side, let's talk about nitrogen just a second. Any certain sources that you like best with your nitrogen, and what are you doing throughout the season then? Split applied, or how do you like to do it? Well, you know, when we went to 20-inch rows in 2004, um, we, we found that uh, it's harder to side dress with narrow rows and stuff. So we do a spring-applied urea. With a, with a stabilizer. Um, we've been pretty strong on um, using stabilizers to slow the release of the nitrates for the plant. And, uh, you know, we, we, we're having very good luck on our ground with 130 to 140 pounds of nitrogen with a stabilizer and producing 225 to 250 bushel corn pretty commonly. So, you know, that's something that's really changed over the years. You know, when I started farming, there was about, figured about a pound of nitrogen per bushel. And now we're, it's closer to a half a pound we're getting per bushel. So we've, we've, we've worked hard to reduce our needs for nitrogen and, uh, 
and uh, we'll continue to try new things like biologicals and uh, see if we can continue to reduce nitrate, nitrogen rates. With your nitrogen, though, it's all one pass early in the spring then? It's one pass in spring applied, and then we do impregnate our, uh, our pre's with that, so it's, it's a one pass and it's there um, for our weed control, early weed control, and our nitrogen source for the growing season. What about your P and K then? Um, yeah, a lot of that spring applied too. Um, we do that. We usually do a, a rotation and we put most of our P and K on standing corn stalks that are going to soybeans with a pre-impregnated on it. And then we do a one pass vertical tillage right before we plant. And we've had good luck with that program. The growers that you're working with, are they pretty similar to what you're doing? Or is there a pretty wide range up here? No, it's that? a wide range. And I always say it, every farmer knows their soils best and their, their farm operations and what works best for them. I, I really don't try to tell people how they should farm their ground. Um, I'm a true believer and they know best what to do with their soils and their farming operation. Right, right. You mentioned tillage. What are you doing with uh, tillage up here? And is that different than most of your neighbors? It is a little different than a lot of our neighbors. Um, we've gone to a, basically a one-pass vertical tillage spring in the spring for our uh, standing corn stalks to go to beans and into our bean stubble to plant corn. Um, we've really reduced our tillage over the last uh, seven to ten years. Uh, you know, we've we've learned over time that reducing tillage helps with your organic matter growth. Um, we've had farms that we've seen our organic matter grow from three to three and a half to five and a half to six and a half percent over the last 30 years. And we want to continue growing our organic matter. The higher your organic matter in the soil, the more carbon holding ability it has, the more nutrient holding ability it has, and the more moisture holding ability it has. So we're focused on reducing tillage. Um, I know there's a lot of growers that no-till, and I respect that totally. Um, it works good on their operations. We've tried it in ours, and it, we had too much of a yield loss with it. And this was like five years ago. Going to try do a trial again this spring. Um, I've got a couple farms that have seeded cover crops for the first time ever, and I'm gonna, those fields are going to be half of them are going to be one-pass vertical tillage, and the other half is going to be no-tilled into a terminated cover crop. Do you think that you're making that switch because you see some opportunities that have changed over time, or is it with carbon credits, or what has been the move behind doing it? Well, some of it might be towards carbon credits, um, but I do feel, you know, I've been been involved in that discussion for the last few years with as a member of the Iowa Corn Growers and uh, and other organizations and uh, I see the benefits of, of, in, of sequestering carbon in our soils for our plant health and growth so uh, that's I've heard good things about cover crops I've heard bad things about cover crops so I'm going to experiment on my own farm and and it won't be a one-year trial it's going to, you know, I, I, I don't do that just the one year, and if it don't work, I'm done. I'll give it, I'll give it a shot for a few years and see how it pans out. And uh, it, I know, too, in our farming operation, we have some farms that will work better than others. Mm -hmm. So we have that opportunity to uh, you know, do some little different farming practices. Because of your position with the Iowa Corn Promotion Board, but also just being a farmer out here and, and knowing the discussion, are you seeing more people look at 
some different farming methods because of carbon credits? Is it a big conversation topic up here, or, or what do you hear? I think it is, and I also think it's for erosion issues. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the cover crop acreage is, oh, man, it's about three million acres in Iowa this coming spring or, or this year where wasn't that many years ago, it was 10,000. So there's, there's a lot more. And you know, we don't have highly erodible ground where we're sitting here today, but I know there's parts of the state that are a lot more erodible and uh, that's where it really shines is for erosion control. It also helps build the organic matters in those soils. And uh, so it's, it's a good practice. So you mentioned the soils here. Talk about the soils in this county. This is pretty productive ground. Yeah, we have some really good dirt in O'Brien County. Um, one of the bragging points over the last five years, we've been the top valued land in Iowa, four of the five. And uh, it's, it's a good Galvo Primgar um, soil type that has a good black topsoil and, and clay base. So uh, pretty, pretty good dirt. CSR 2s, you know, there's, there's some at 90, but a lot of ours are in that 95 to 99 CSR 2s. So it's, it's good dirt. What are you seeing for land values up here this past year? Well, they're, they're strong. <laughs> um, you know, they've, they've pretty much been strong in, in this part of the state or in our area for several years, you know. Um, but over the last, I suppose, year, I've, I'm estimating land values are up around $3,000 an acre from a year ago. And you would have land in this county or nearby that could be up to $20,000 an acre? Yeah. Then? Yeah, we've had some bump in that, and we've had some just to the west up here in that 25, bring as much as 25, so. Talk about how much you've seen, though, in the time you've been farming, because you started, you said, in 83, is that Yeah, right? 1983, I, I come, my dad was the only farmer in our extended family, and he had four boys, and we're all farming today, but uh, back then, he didn't have a big enough acreage to share it. So he said, you, you know, and he was proud that we wanted to farm, but uh, we're going to have to go find some land. So I went to an auction and bought a farm in 1983. Um, you know, the price sounds really cheap today at 2000 bucks, but I was paying 18% interest. And that was back in the day when our gross income on a farm was about $300 an acre. So I'll let everybody do their own math on that. So <laughs> we had to have a good off-the-farm job to make that work back then. Talk about what has changed. Obviously, the interest rates are lower, and you were working off the farm, I think, as a welder to, to make you know ends meet and pay for the farm. But now we're at you know fifteen to twenty thousand dollars an acre. So how does it uh, work today? Have things just appreciated enough that we can make it work? I mean, is it, it's obviously working for farmers here, paying well, this type of land cost. Yeah, I think interest rates have been helpful, but also you know buying land over the years. I bought my first farm in 83 and then a few years later another one. And as we built equity in our farming operation, that gives us, gives us the opportunity to continue to purchase a few more acres and, and average it out amongst the whole farm operation. Let's talk about your role with the Iowa Corn Promotion Board. You've got lots of ethanol plants uh, around here, but what do you see as some of the opportunities to be able to use more of this corn in Northwest Iowa, but even beyond. Yeah, you know, I, I still think there's a lot of growth potential in the biofuels industry. Um, you know, there's discussions about EV vehicles, but I, I've seen a lot of research and studies that say by 2050, 80% of the vehicles on the road will still be internal combustion engines. 
And so our, our, our main focus is to get, continue to share the message about if, if we're truly concerned about climate change and carbon emissions, uh, ethanol and, and renewable diesel and biodiesel are here today and they reduce greenhouse gases emissions by a minimum of 46%. So, you know, our, our goal is to get more in the tank. Um, we're at kind of a national average of about 10% in every gallon of fuel and just going to 15% as a national average would increase our ethanol demand uh, 7 billion gallons. And then was, that would increase the corn grind need for that by two and a half billion bushels. So there's great potential there. We're doing a lot of research and development, um, have some new products coming around um, that are going to uh, take corn grind and, and be very positive. I, there's an announcement going to happen here pretty soon that I can't talk about <laughs> yet, but uh, it, there will be one at the end of this week that's uh, a project that Iowa Corn's uh, research and development team has been working on for at least five years, so pretty excited about that. Um, you know, the promotion board, we deal with our checkoff dollars, and we work with uh, um, informing consumers, education, market development, and research and development. So that's where our funds go to, and we, we do the best we possibly can to get the most bang for our buck out of our checkoff dollars. You mentioned climate change there. Do you feel like that for farmers, it's something that, in a sense, we shouldn't fear because we play a role in that discussion? Or how do you look at it? Because uh, however it's framed could mean a lot of different things to different farmers. Yeah, you know, farming, farming in the past got a bad rap for being a, a, a part of the problem for the climate change. But with our farming practices changing over the years, I feel strongly we're part of the solution to climate change. I know we've reduced our amount of tillage a lot. We've used an amount, reduced the amount of fuels needed for our farming operations. Um, the biofuels industry, a lot of our corn, 53% of Iowa's corn go to ethanol plants and 40% nationwide. And that product is reducing our carbon emissions. Um, we've got um, projects going on that are lowering CI scores at ethanol plants as we go. Um, and, and now there's discussion on carbon capture and storage uh, pipelines, and that's to me, is low-hanging fruit. Um, we could reduce carbon emissions so greatly in the biofuels industry to make us a very long-term solution to climate change and also benefit our environment with that fuel being in the tanks. Not only in small vehicles, but there's a new thing, clear flame engines is in the studies right now. It's a diesel styled engine that runs on E98 ethanol. Um, it's being put in semis right now for testing. It went through Cummings engines, testing stands, flying colors. That's a type of an engine that can be used in semis, large tractors, um, large generators. There's a lot of large generators in the country that run on diesel fuel. And then now there's, there's work being done on sustainable aviation fuel. And biofuels will be a part of that. So, you know, there's a lot of, lot of uh, promising uh, um, things coming down the road for the biofuels industry. We're still a little ways from spring, but what do you foresee perhaps this spring in Northwest Iowa? You know, the weather's uh, something that you cannot uh, pick or choose. Uh, sitting here in Northwest Iowa, 
We have a lot better water profile this going into this spring. We're, we're not in a drought condition right now. I think we have some tiles that are running. I think our profile is pretty full. Whereas in 2021, it was really low. We had, we were sitting in extreme drought conditions. So feel good about the moisture conditions, um, but you know, we'll see how the temperatures go and uh, the spring conditions. You know, I, in our part of the state, we like to plant in the dust, <laughs> the bends will bust. Uh, we, we get hurt a lot more here from ex excessive moisture than we do under the dry, drier conditions as we sh saw last year. So I'm looking forward to 2022. We got um, commodity prices at good levels. Input costs have gone up a lot, um, so we're going to have to deal with that. But uh, uh, as long as we can produce another, uh, another good crop, I think we'll be pretty good. Do you think that the level of commodity prices right now has changed the way you market or others are marketing and how they're even viewing the upcoming crop we're gonna put in the ground? I do think so. You know, I pretty much have all 2021's crops sold right now and uh, 2022 have some of it sold already for this, this coming crop. And uh, you know, the market levels are good and, and all I gotta do is produce a crop and it'll be profitable. Um, you know, we, we do uh, invest in crop insurance, you know, in today's ag world, we have a large uh, input cost. It takes a lot of dollars to put a crop in, so we, we protect ourselves through uh, crop insurance, but uh, pretty confident we can have a profitable year as long as the weather conditions are uh, good. What have been the topics of discussion between you and, and growers? whether it was from fall to now spring, anything's on their minds and your minds the most right now? No, I think for the most part, guys knew um, late fall after, you know, after harvest where they were gonna go for next spring's planting. Um, and I think they're pretty well set for acreage. Um, I don't hear, haven't heard anybody contact me wanting to switch up from corn to beans or beans to corn. So I think right here in this part of the area, they're pretty much stuck on uh, where the, what they want to do and what acres they want to plant to what crop. You know, everybody's got their own perspective on how much input costs they want to spend. Right. Uh, you know, when we fertilize for 250 bushel corn and... Uh, you know, it just depends on where you think you are with your equipment and your soil types and stuff. But, right. uh, you know, this last year we averaged 75 bushel on all of our bean acres. So we hit the ball out of the park with that one. That's <laughs> the best we've ever done right. in our farming careers in about close to 40 years. So it's pretty, pretty good. Um, there's, you know, I've, I've got a lot of smaller farmers that are have off-the-farm jobs and, and a few larger ones that strictly do farming operations, but uh, yeah, it's fun to work with all of them. Those that are renting ground, does that discussion change a lot then with what they want to do nutrient-wise? I mean, obviously you want to put what you need down there, but how has that changed the discussion if they're paying pretty big rent for some of this ground up here? Yeah, it does definitely make a difference. And I think a lot of that has to do with how long-term their contracts or their leases are. Um, you know, if you've got a longer term lease, you're more willing to, even like, like lime applications for pH, um, it's almost, you know, you put lime on, you figure about a five-year use out of that. So you, if you're going to spend that investment, you want to be covered for the, the length of the value from that lime application. And so, yeah, it does make a difference, but, uh, you know, a lot of landowners are pretty, uh, you know, 
they want their soils taken care of too, so they want to see the fertility levels maintained. And I think the key to the, a lot of the renters is mainly maintain um, their soil profiles and their fertility levels. I'm guessing still mostly cash rents as opposed to any type of sharecropping, or have you seen it, Nah, it's pretty much cash rent okay. in Northwest Iowa, and you know, that, that, that changed over the years. There used to be a lot of sharecrop, but uh, I think the stress of marketing and, and you know, it's, it's a risky business for farmers, and, uh, and I think that's why we've gone to a cash rent because uh, a lot of the landowners don't want to take the risk as much. Kelly does farm some of the best crop ground in the state. It was fun to hear his thoughts on what's working well in their area and some of his ideas on the future of the industry. That's it for this edition of our show. Remember, you can hear all of our shows at farmingthecountryside.com and you can get more info by following Farming the Countryside on Facebook. You can also hear our daily features, American Countryside, on about 100 local radio stations at AmericanCountryside.com and follow along on Facebook as well. And don't forget to check out TotalTownMakeover.com where we're posting radio, TV, and podcast segments on ideas to help communities in rural and agricultural America. I appreciate you listening. I'm Andrew McCray. I'll catch you next time on Farming the Countryside. Farming the Countryside has been brought to you by the Top Producer Summit, coming up February 14th through the 16th in Nashville. Learn more at tpsummit.com.